Bibles and turn to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2. As a reminder, it's three books from the end of the Old Testament after Zephaniah. Haggai chapter 2. You know, a lot of what we do or not do today is formed by events and experiences of the past. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, they sure are. I think I've shared this with you some time ago, but for those who have not heard it, it'd be good for you to hear this little story that happened in our lives, my life, I should say, that captures this point. My father, some years ago, we had been in the early 70s, had co-signed a loan for his sister. Uh, they were needing some money for certain, certain things. I don't know exactly what it was. But they took out a loan and asked my dad to co-sign that loan. And he did, very willingly. It was for his sister. But they never stayed committed to the loan and so my dad was responsible to pay off that loan. In the early 70s, uh, our family had a 71 Oldsmobile. It was a beautiful, beautiful car. And this would have taken place in 1973, so the car was only two years old. My dad had to sell that car in order to pay off the loan and hopefully have some left over to get another vehicle because our family was planning a trip out to Maine some like three months later. And I can remember my mom saying, you know, kids, I don't know if we're going to be able to go on this trip if we don't sell this car. Well, the car sold. Praise the Lord for that. And my dad got enough money to pay off the loan and then get another car. Well, that car <laughs> was much older. It was a 61 Pontiac Tempest station wagon, light blue. It was ugly as the day is long. And my dad had enough money to put a rebuilt engine into it, which was nice because if we were going to travel from Montana to Maine, you better have a dependable vehicle. Well, we didn't have a whole lot of time to test out the car, so we just went on this trip. I'm not going to tell you about the trip. That's a whole story in itself. But you got to remember, five kids, mom and dad, in this car, stuff on the top, stuff in the back. I mean, it was crazy. It's something that is embedded into my mind. I have never forgotten it. But the real matter that I want to touch on here concerning this co-signing deal was some 10 years later, I would have been about 22 years old, and in my last year of college, I wanted to borrow some money so that I could just go to school and concentrate on my studies without having to work. So I went to the credit union and I sought, sought for a loan. And they said, well, we'll give you a loan, but your dad must co-sign. And I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder how this is going to go. Well, I went to my dad, told him the situation. He says, well, great, you're getting a loan, right? I said, well, dad, I need you to co-sign. The first words out of his mind he looked at me in the face and said, are you kidding me? I mean, really? Don't you remember what happened 10 years ago? 
I said, yes, I do. And I remember the vacation afterwards. So that whole experience was embedded into our hearts and minds. And it has formulated a lot of what I do today. Well, God many times uses the past to encourage or challenge you for the future. He does. And certainly this was the case for the Jewish exiles who had returned to rebuild the temple. And I want you to see this in verses 10 to 19 of Haggai chapter 2. So follow along as I read. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with his food or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, No. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, It will become unclean. Then Haggai said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. But now do consider from this day onward, before the stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from the time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would be only 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting, wind, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn? even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it has not borne fruit yet. From this day on, I will bless you. And may God add his blessing to the reading of that portion of Scripture. The word from the prophet here came two months after his last message to the people recorded in the first nine verses of this chapter. And it happened three months after the resumption of the temple project. And he records that in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. But if you remember, the people became quickly disheartened in the work, especially as they viewed their present situation, their present endeavor, in comparison to the temple that they had known previously. In fact, go with me back to chapter 2, verse 3. This is a rhetorical question from God. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? God knew the answer to that. He's simply asking the question to let them know, I know what's on your heart and what you're thinking about. They were very, very discouraged. Also, at the same time, there was oppression from enemies in the land, so things were difficult. And so in 2, 4 to 9, the previous context, Haggai encouraged the people. And how did he encourage them? Well, first of all, with God's presence as they did the work. 
Look what it says in verses 4 and 5, especially the end of verse 4. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. And so this word from the Lord must have been very encouraging. As you begin to do this work, don't be disheartened. God is with you. There's no need to fear, even though there's oppression all around. But that isn't the only way that he encouraged them. In verse 9, notice what it says. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And so he's encouraging them with the significance of their work that they're doing in the, in the present. He wanted them to look at the future. When the Lord Jesus Christ would reign in his temple, reign in righteousness, and there would be peace. And so he wanted them to be inspired about the future as they worked in the present on this temple. But in the following text that we just read today, it appears that things are still not quite right in the eyes of the Lord. And that is affirmed by the beginning of Zechariah's ministry, which happened a month earlier. If you turn right across the page, Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai. They worked hand in hand, ministering to these exiles in building the temple of God. And notice what it says there. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. They did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us very clearly. Things were still not quite right in their hearts, even though they had returned to working on the temple of God. And so though the people were doing the work, God saw their hearts and their need for further exhortation. He doesn't want them to just be going through the motions. Oh, we're working on the house of the Lord but then your hearts aren't right. There's something wrong with that. And so Haggai followed Zacharias' message with another word from God a month later. It's similar, but it's a little bit different. Also, he repeats a lot of what he said in the first chapter, particularly verses 5 through 11, and we'll touch on that in a little bit. But basically... The principle that is reinforced in this text that we're looking at today, the theme of this passage, is that while sin removes God's blessings, righteousness and obedience 
releases his blessings. And so, beloved, where are you in your hearts this morning? I want you to just pause for a moment and to think about that. Where are you in your hearts? You could be going through the motions of living for Christ, but you are not in a right place with him. One of the things I just want to say right up front, I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful to be a pastor of this church where I see the hearts of you people who love to minister and to serve. I see it all around me. But could it be possible that in the midst of your service, things aren't quite right in your hearts before the Lord? You should be concerned about that. You know, things in your life may be hidden from others, but not from God. And it's keeping you from enjoying the full blessings of God, the full blessings of your salvation. And so what should be of help to you in this passage from the message of the prophet? What can be of help to you? Well, I want you to consider with me three spiritual lessons, three spiritual message, lessons that are emphasized from the prophet. And I trust that through this, you will be examining your hearts. And as you examine your hearts, I trust that there will be repentance and that you will continue in faithfulness, knowing the blessing of God upon your lives. And the first lesson is actually captured there in verses 11 through 14. I want to read it again. Notice what the prophet starts out with. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with his fold or cook food, wine, oil, and other food, will it become holy? And the priests answered, no. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priests answered, it will become unclean. Then Haggai said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. What did God want people to learn from this, from this little illustration? Actually, it was a truth. It's this, understand the defilement of sin. Understand the defilement of sin of sin. As you can see, God used here a simple object lesson from the law and wanted the priest to confirm it. And what was that lesson, that object lesson? Well, it's this, that ceremonial cleanness cannot be transferred, while ceremonial uncleanness can be transferred. It was a truth taken from the Old Testament, particularly Leviticus, also in Numbers 19. You can go there and see that. But he wanted the priests to confirm it for the people at that time because he wanted to teach them something. I think a good analogy would be the whole COVID experience that we had in the last year. I mean, when you were exposed to someone with COVID or you got the COVID, what happened? You were, you were quarantined. And why were you quarantined? So that you wouldn't transmit that disease to someone else, that virus to someone else. But let's say you were healthy 
and you got around somebody who was unhealthy, would your healthiness be transmitted to them? No, not at all. It's the other way around. That's sort of an analogy that we can take from the present to understand what is being said here by the prophet. Really, the spiritual point that he wanted to drive home with the people was that sin is infectious, but holiness is not. In fact, look at verse 14, which is the application of verses 11 to 13. He says at the end of verse 13, it will become unclean. Then Haggai said, so is this people. And so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. You see? They were sinful. And it was impacting what they did, even their worship for the Lord. You see, prior to the rebuilding of the temple, there was misplaced priorities and disobedience, right? I mean, we looked at that in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. That's what the prophet declared. But I do believe here, and I, that, and I do believe here that what the prophet is referring to is that time frame because of the context that follows. I believe he's going back to where they were, even up to the present. And so you have to keep that in mind. And I do believe that though the people had returned to the work, there were still some who were doing the work whose hearts really hadn't turned around. I mean, you know what happens. You get a group of people, they follow the Lord, at least some of them do, but there are some also on the fringes. And so I believe that Haggai is not only speaking about the past, but even in the present to some people whose hearts weren't fully committed to what they were doing. There possibly was complacency in the heart. Other sin issues. I mean, we could see that from the previous context when they got discouraged as they worked on the house of the Lord. So God saw it, and he wanted them to know that it was hurting their worship and service to the Lord. Though they were doing these things, it was not honoring to him because of the defilement of sin. Now, I believe a good illustration comes from an historical account in the Old Testament, one that you are very familiar with. It takes place in 1 Samuel 15. Take your Bibles and turn there, if you would, to 1 Samuel 15. This is the story of Saul. 1 Samuel 15. We're not going to read the whole chapter, just highlights of it. Notice what it says there in verse 3. This was the word that came to Saul from the Lord. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That seems pretty clear, right? Now look with me at verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag 
and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Now, I want you to look with me at verses 13 and 14. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Really? But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Now look at verses 17 and following. Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. <laughs> he must be blind. Verse 21, but the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God of Gilgal. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Verse 23, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Wow. Now, did God want them to offer sacrifices? Sure. But with an obedient heart, otherwise it would be defiled and not honor God. In fact, God is more concerned with our hearts and our love for him and our obedience than he is sacrifice, as it says there. Hosea 6, 4 to 6 says these words, listen. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? And what shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. We saw this same thing in Isaiah chapter 1 this morning, verses 10 through 20, our scripture reading, the very same thing. This is why when we have communion... There is to be an examination of the heart, right? Because partaking of communion, which is worship, with sin in our hearts is an abomination. And that is declared in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 and 28. Oh, beloved, just as the Jewish people in Haggai's day 
You need to understand that when there is sin upon the heart, disobedience in one's life, your service and worship to the Lord is stained. And it's not pleasing to him. In fact, listen to these words in Proverbs 21 and verse 27. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? This is serious. It really is. And it should lead to repentance because the heart of the true Christian is to please God, is it not? In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul said, my ambition is to please God. Is that your ambition? To please God no matter what? To have a pure heart before him? Because if it's not, it's going to stain everything that you do. God's more concerned about what's going on in your heart than what you are doing on the outside. Yes, many of us could be serving the Lord, doing ministry. But there might be sin right here. He's concerned about that. He wants you to do those things in a way that pleases him. And so understand the defilement of sin. That is the first thing (laughs) that Haggai says to these Jewish exiles. He wanted them to get that. Well, we turn to another important lesson. And it's there in verses 15 to 19. It's one that is closely related to the last. Follow as I read, as he goes on to say. But now, do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. From that time, when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures... There would only be 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would only be 20. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it has not borne fruit. What was the prophet emphasizing here from those words? It's this lesson. Realize the consequences of disobedience. Realize the consequences of disobedience. Three times here, the prophet called the people to consider 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 now you might be thinking didn't he say those words before yeah he did (laughs) it's a key theme in Haggai look at chapter 1 verses 5 and 7 now therefore thus says the Lord consider your ways verse 7 thus says the Lord consider your ways five times in Haggai he calls the people to consider, to set their hearts upon, to give careful thought to something. And what was it in chapter 2? It was that their agricultural misfortunes over several years were from the hand of God due to their disobedience. That's what he wanted them to consider, to set their heart upon. And the situation actually goes back to when they stopped working on the house of God some 16 years earlier up to the present. 
In fact, look at verses 15 and 18 where he says this. But now do consider from this day onward before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. Verse 18. Do consider from this day onward from the 24th day of the ninth month from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded. Consider. So from that point some 16 years earlier to the present, yeah, they were experiencing the consequences of their disobedience. The question is, why didn't they get that? Interestingly, Haggai shared the same message with the people almost four months earlier. Look with me back at chapter 1. Verse 6. But you have so much but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And though he who earns, earns wages to put it into a purse with holes. Verses 9 through 11, you look for much, but behold, it comes too little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house, which lies desolate. While each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all labor of your hands. So he had already talked about this some four months earlier. And now he's repeating it again just a little while later. Why? He wanted them to get the message. He's not for sure that they've gotten the message. He did not want them to forget the covenant that God had established with them. Remember the covenant of Moses in Deuteronomy 28? If you obey me, you will have my blessings. But if you disobey, you'll have my curses. Yes, God was true to his word. In fact, that whole covenant is just bleeding through the Old Testament to remind the people of how important it is to obey the Lord. When you don't, you will suffer the consequences. It was meant to be an incentive to always please and obey God. Now, beloved, the church is not under such a covenant, is it? We're not. But God does discipline his children for sin and disobedience, does he not? He sure does. In fact, to confirm that, holding your space here, go with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews is speaking to the church. We need to hear these words. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 5. The writer says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. That is a quote from the Old Testament. It is for discipline for you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. 
shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. A good illustration of this very thing, God's disciplining his people in the church, is found with the church at Corinth. You know the passage. It's found in 1 Corinthians 11. A couple of weeks ago, I addressed this very thing. You remember that the church at Corinth was carnal. They were fleshly. There was strife. There was divisions amongst them. They had no regard for the weak, no regard for the poor. In fact, when you come to 1 Corinthians 11, there's these love feasts that are going on where the rich are not sharing with the poor. And so as he goes on in the rest of the chapter to instruct them about the Lord's Supper, he says these words to them. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined of the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Amen and amen. So he's reminding them that because of their sin and disobedience, there was people in the body who were weak and sickly and some were sleeping. They had died. This is all by the hand of the Lord in the church. You know, we live in a day and age and I think we somehow have forgotten this truth. We become passive in our lives. We just say, oh, you know, yeah, I'm going to do this or that. It doesn't really matter. The Lord's not going to do anything. He's always going to be gracious to me. <laughs> well, frankly, he is gracious when he disciplines us because it's to draw us back to himself. And so again, beloved... This is serious. It's something that we shouldn't take lightly at all. Because what God did some 3,000 years ago, yeah, he's still doing in the church today. Realizing the consequences of disobedience is an important lesson to be considered, to set your heart upon. And that is what Haggai told the Jewish exiles, and it is for the church so may God help us to take heed. Let us understand the defilement of sin and let us realize the consequences of disobedience. This is the first two things he addresses with these people. As they started the work, he didn't want them to lapse. There were some on the fringes whose hearts weren't right. He's reminding them of these things. Don't forget while well, we turn to one other important lesson, and it's there in verse 19. Look what it says. I'm going to read the whole verse. Is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It has not borne fruit. Up to that point in time, it hadn't. But notice what he says. Yet, from this day on, I will bless you and so, what is the lesson there at the end of the verse? It's pretty simple. Know the blessing 
of holiness and obedience. Know the blessing of holiness and obedience. Yes, in the previous context, God confronted the matter of defilement and consequences of disobedience, but he did not end on that note. (laughs) There's grace here that he's offering them. He promised hope for them if they continued to do the work with pure hearts fearing him. And the blessing to which he referred here was the physical prosperity of having fruitful harvests once again according to God's covenant. If you obey, you will have my blessings. God's going to stay true to his promise that he made years before. If you obey with a pure heart. So what joy and encouragement this must have been for them in the present day. There's grace being offered here by God. But let me again ask you this question. How are Christians to look at this today? How is the church to to look at this today? You know, in all honesty, there are times when today as Christians we face physical hardships, right? We lose our jobs. Maybe there are times when it's hard to make ends meet, right? Yeah, that happens. I mean, could this be God's discipline upon individuals in the church? Sure it could. That's possible. But it also could be a trial to strengthen and to teach them to have contentment in Christ, right? Kind of like Paul in Philippians 4, 11 to 13 there. What did he say? I know how to be abased and I know how to abound, okay? I know what it's like to make ends meet. But I know also how to abound. He says, I have learned, I have learned to be content. Content in whom? God. And what did he learn? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yeah. So yes, there are times when we face hardships as Christians that we're going through a trial to learn contentment in Christ. God knows, right? And he knows what we need in those moments. Generally speaking, however, what did Jesus tell his listeners who had anxiety over their daily provision. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6? What did Jesus say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and what? All of these things will be added unto you. You don't have to worry about your physical needs being met. I will take care of you as you are concerned with what concerns me. You see, the world out there is concerned about those things. But if you're seeking God's kingdom, if you're seeking his will and wanting to follow him, he'll take care of the rest. You can trust him with that. And through it all, he'll teach you contentment in Christ. (laughs) How wonderful. This is something to consider, to truly know in your hearts. And yet, on the other hand, the best blessings that God's people enjoy from a holy and obedient life are spiritual, aren't they? Aren't those the best blessings? You bet they are. For example, I'm going to give you five real quick ones. Five blessings 
this morning. Spiritual blessings that we should be enjoying on a day-by-day basis. You need to write these down. Number one, guilt removed and joy restored. Think about it. If we are in sin and disobedience with confession of that sin to the Lord and a turning to him, what happens? Guilt is removed. Joy is restored. Listen to these words from Psalm 32, 1 and 2. This would have been David after his sin with Bathsheba. He says this, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Isn't that wonderful? We sin every day, right? And yet we can know the blessing of having guilt removed and joy restored. That would be enough for us this morning. (laughs) But there's more. How about fellowship and communion with the Lord? I like what the psalmist says in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. For he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, which bringeth forth its fruit in its season. Its leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Wow! That's the blessing of communion with the Lord. How about 1 John 1, 7? If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. There's another blessing, an unhindered prayer life. An unhindered prayer life. Listen to these words from Psalm 66, 18 to 20. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear, but certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his loving kindness from me. But when there's sin in your heart, you forfeit that. Your prayers are hindered. Men, think about this. In 1 Peter 3, 7, there's a word to Christian husbands that if they don't dwell with their wives in an understanding way, What does the text say? Their prayers will be hindered. Hindered! I don't think any of us wants that. Here's a fourth one. Assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation. One of my favorite texts in the New Testament, and certainly in 1 John, is these words in chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him... And does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, and I like this phrase, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. Yes, when love is in our hearts, we obey. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. John is just black and white. You want to know assurance? then have a heart that's pure. Obey God out of your love for him. I've talked with many Christians who struggle with assurance. There was a time in my own life that I struggled with assurance. And I know it was because of sin and other issues. And I've talked with God's people where I find that they're they're struggling with this assurance of salvation. And so we have to go back to their hearts. What's going on? 
that would keep you from enjoying this wonderful blessing. Don't forfeit that because of sin. Here's one other one. Confident trust in the Lord. Living each day with confident trust in the Lord. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 40. It's a Psalm of David. Psalm 40. And I just want to read the first four verses. We don't know the circumstances surrounding this situation, but we don't need to. I love what it says here. There's a message for us in it. Psalm 41 to 4. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. There is a blessing on those who trust in the Lord. But when there's sin, you forfeit that. There is not a heart of trust in the Lord. There's a heart of doubt. And these are just a few that I gave you. (laughs) It's marvelous just to think of those five, right? And yet there's so much more, so many more blessings. And so I pray, beloved, that you know the blessings of holiness and obedience. Because if you're living in sin and disobedience, you will only know the opposite of what I just said. And your life will be embedded in fear, doubt, and a lack of peace with your Savior. That's not his will for you. Not at all. So may your heart instead be set on pleasing him. You know, most, if not all of you, have a routine to begin your day. I think you do anyway. (laughs) I mean, you just don't get up in the morning, throw your clothes on, and walk out the door. Yeah, I, I don't, and I'm expecting that most of you don't either. You get up, you shower, you brush your teeth, and then you will probably comb your hair or brush your hair. And then you ladies will put on makeup. Some of you men will shave. And then you'll go downstairs and you'll have breakfast or a cup of coffee and probably get caught up on the day's news. And all of this is to get a fresh start to your day. We do that without thinking about it. It's our pattern. But how about getting each day started off in a fresh way spiritually? Well, I believe considering or setting your heart upon the lessons you heard today will be a daily guide for self-examination leading to faithfulness. You can take the lessons that you heard this morning. You can principalize them and all that you heard for your day. Start your day off fresh by applying these lessons to your heart. Think through them so that they guide you to be faithful to the Lord. That is understanding the defilement of sin. That is realizing the consequences of disobedience. And that is knowing the blessings of holiness and obedience. Let these lessons guide you as the Lord 
directs you each day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I just praise you for these things that we can see from the text today, these things that the prophet shared with those people some 3,000 years ago, and yet, God, they're relevant for the church. We see so much in the New Testament that emphasizes the things that Haggai said. And so, Lord, help us this morning to examine our hearts, to repent if necessary, and fall back into obedience intentionally pleasing you because we love you, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.